Kevin Jensen with EWTN Global Catholic Network. Two big concerns for pro-life Americans, the Hyde Amendment and the Mexico City policy, which under the previous administration they expanded to keep the tax dollars from overseas paying for abortions. So what, are President, what is President Biden planning on doing on those two items right now? Uh, well, I think we'll have more to say on the Mexico City policy in the coming days, but I will just take the opportunity to remind all of you that he is a devout Catholic and somebody who attends church regularly. He started his day attending church with his family this morning, but I don't have anything more for you on that. That is new White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki fielding a question from a reporter with the Eternal World Television Network. 24-hour conservative Catholic-themed news channel. EWTN, as it's known, is not an official media channel of the Vatican. It is one of the many religious media organizations advancing neoconservatism on cable television, radio, and online. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. This week, a closer look at the faith of President Biden, the seismic shifts in American Catholicism, and the perspective of a priest in Arlington, Virginia, in the wake of a capital insurrection. We begin this week with Massimo Fagioli, a professor of historical theology at Villanova University in Pennsylvania. Fagioli's new book, Joe Biden and Catholicism in the United States, was released the same day the nation's second Catholic president was inaugurated. I started our conversation recounting the fierce and expensive battle for the Catholic vote, competing issue advocacy campaigns with starkly different messages, one amplifying Biden's personal faith and devotion to Catholic social teaching, and the other zeroing in on one issue, his record on reproductive health policy, including access to abortion services. But that's not where Fajoli starts in his book or in our conversation. He insists that to fully appreciate Biden and the evolution of the American Catholic electorate, we need to go back to the 20th century. Historically, American Catholics were cautious in claiming a direct relationship with their policies with what the Pope was saying. So this was... was was John Kennedy's nightmare. The nightmare was a rampant anti-Catholic sentiment, and it was tied to an anti-immigrant reaction to newcomers from Ireland and Italy. It was not subtle. And in the days before the pivotal West Virginia primary, the Democrats enlisted former President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to confront the fear-mongering. Let us be objective in this campaign. We came, many of us, from Europe to get away from religious persecution. Let us not now allow religious prejudice to come into American politics to divide a nation. Roosevelt, a popular and familiar voice to Americans, is credited with helping Kennedy secure the West Virginia primary. But the Protestant opposition continued. In the fall of 1960, at a ministerial gathering in Houston, Kennedy was unequivocating about his religious independence. I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party's candidate for president, who happens also to be a Catholic. I do not speak for my church on public matters, and the church does not speak for me. It was a pivotal moment that stands in stark contrast to this week's events. 
On the eve of the inauguration, Biden tapped Washington Cardinal Wilton Daniel Gregory to offer an invocation at the first inaugural event, a national memorial to remember the more than 400,000 Americans lost to COVID-19. And Inauguration Day itself began with a highly visible Biden family attending Mass at St. Matthew's Catholic Church in Washington, D.C. Now, Biden attends daily Mass. What made this trip unique? He invited congressional leaders who are both Catholic, Republican, and Democrats to join on a morning documented by the world. Now, if one is looking for a model or sense of how President Biden will lead and bring his faith into public service, Fajoli initially suggests, almost in jest, that we look at the transcendent approach used by a popular fictional president from the NBC drama The West Wing, Catholic Jeb Bartlett, played by Catholic actor Martin Sheen. But this analogy falls short. Fajoli is quick to acknowledge that in 2021, Biden faces a very different American Catholic leadership, one that has been shaped by neoconservative and neo-traditional forces on theology and public engagement. So this moment in the life of the American Catholic Church in relationship with American politics and as a nation is unprecedented because historically Catholics in this country have always been very keen to show their allegiance to the American democratic system. So they wanted to show that they were loyal to American democracy, to the Constitution, to the separation of church and state. What we have seen in these last four years in the Trump presidency is that this church has stayed divided even in front of the challenges or threats that this presidency has moved against the constitutional system and our democracy, and Catholics have become divided even on that issue, which until recently was a no-go area. So no Catholic wanted to be identified with the aspirations of theocracy, of the church running government and so on. So those were taboos for Catholics. Right now, there is clearly in the Catholic Church in this country a split which is not only among voters that may have been convinced by media and so on, but there are bishops, intellectual leaders, academics at important universities like Harvard or Notre Dame, that are openly saying we as Catholics have a moral duty to challenge the American democratic system because it doesn't guarantee values that we as Catholics hold very dear. This is unprecedented. So those old taboos, all those pieties that no one was ready to challenge, now they have come to the fore and this is a, a split, not who's going to be the best candidate for our values and so on, but the other candidate is evil, is Satan, is, is the enemy of the church, or from the other side, this candidate is the enemy of democracy, of the constitution. What happens in these last 45 years, more or less, is that there is the coalescence of two different political 
religious alignment in the Republican Party, which is about abortion, and in the Democratic Party, is about social issues. Now, what happens in this last decade, more or less, is that other issues become very symbolically crucial. The issues of LGBT rights and the issue of religious liberty. There has been a growing concern of Catholics on issues that are not about abortion, but immigration and refugees, death penalty and environment. Before Trump, you had an alignment between Catholic bishops and Catholic conservatives with the Republican Party because the Republican Party was promising a certain policies or attention or appointment of judges on abortion while at least pretending of doing something on the other issues. What do you mean pretending to do other things on other issues? Well, I refer to what uh, George W. Bush was calling compassion conservatism. So which was, of course, for lower taxes, for uh, fewer social services, and so on, but without the ruthlessness of the Republican Party of these last few years. So that fiction has gone into pieces with Donald Trump because it was clear that the abortion card was played in a way that was as cynical as it gets because the Republicans care about abortion, but actually they try to care about other things after Donald Trump is elected, it's no longer believable. The second factor is this, is that until the 2012 election, Republican Catholics could claim reasonably that they had the Pope and the Vatican on their side. With Pope Francis, this is no longer believable. It's clear that that international, transatlantic alignment between conservative religious in this country and the Vatican and the Pope is no longer there. Pope Francis rearranged the priorities, saying many times, we care about abortion, but we care also for life after birth, for all of that. So here there is a Republican Party and Republican Catholics that have become more radicalized, but also more nationalized. At this particular moment, what is extraordinary is that you have very clearly, very publicly, an alignment between a president that has been elected and the Pope, which is something that 10 years ago or 20 years ago was totally science fiction. No one with John Paul II or Pope Benedict could imagine that. Setting aside the global realignment for a moment, what is clear is the 46th president's comfort and ease in expressing his personal faith while weaving lessons that he draws from that faith into his political vision. Among the many leaders he quoted during his inaugural speech was the 4th century priest, bishop, and theologian, St. Augustine. Many centuries ago, St. Augustine a saint in my church, wrote that a people was a multitude 
defined by the common objects of their love. This public alignment between Pope Francis and the American president is unfolding at the same time American Catholic leadership is challenging Pope Francis. Pope Francis has been really on the receiving end in these last seven, eight years, almost eight years, of a campaign of delegitimization from Catholics coming especially from the United States. Whatever the Pope says on theological issues, on social issues, especially life issues, now with this change of a Pope, no longer European, but Latin American, and the Jesuit, which is one more problem. So they have really changed our allegiance because their Pope has become, for some of them, Donald Trump much more than Francis. And on the other side, liberal Catholics, especially among Democrats, that especially since the 1960s, they had developed this culture, this ethos of independence, of autonomy, of I use my own conscience. Now, suddenly, Pope Francis comes and liberal Catholics become much more papalists than they could imagine. Why? Because Pope Francis was speaking their language and saying things that they understood that uh, had percolated in some ways to Latin America, and incredibly, they became really part of the language of, of the Pope. Liberal Catholics, they have become ultramontanists, saying, well, Pope Francis, whatever he says, it has to be true because he finally speaks our language. And some American Catholics, uh, bishops, cardinals that are part of uh, the conservative culture here, they started speaking against Pope Francis in the very first few days and weeks of his pontificate. Even before he decides anything, already in the spring and summer of 2013, they start saying, on the record, well, this Pope is not really good for us. The only problem was that Francis had started talking about the poor mm-hmm. immediately. The percentage of American Catholics that prefer Donald Trump over Pope Francis is a minority, but not that marginal. And it's a significant minority, especially because it's very present in the clergy, in the power brokers, in the financial world, among politicians. So it's a minority, but not as small as one could expect. And this is going to continue. Fajoli points to another reality, the influence of race and demographic changes on the clerical leadership in America. From the point of view of the global church, American Catholicism is unique because what's happening in this country now is a huge transition from a church that has been led for two centuries by a clerical leadership that was made of white Europeans of or European descent to a future of the church that is no longer made of whites or European descent, and it will be made much more by Latino Catholics. And this is clearly one of the issues on which a certain kind of white Catholicism has reacted by identifying itself with Donald Trump. It's the dream 
of replicating within Catholicism a model of minority rule that the Republican Party has tried to impose by limiting the right to vote in some communities, in some groups, for example. So here, this church in the United States should have many more bishops that are non-white, of non-European descent. And that hasn't happened yet for many reasons. So you need to have a certain representation of Latino Catholics, of Asian Catholics, African American Catholics in the seminaries or the schools of theology. So it's not the same mechanism that is imposed by some Republicans by trying to exclude some communities from the vote. Okay, it works differently, but it's the same problem. So it's this future of the country and of the Catholic Church, which is not going to be dominated by white Europeans as it has been for two plus centuries. Mm. And so these are two communities that are struggling with this. And in the Catholic Church, it's also a problem of money because we all know that the Catholic Church in this country, for some of his endeavors, of his works, depends heavily on big donors. And those big donors happen to be white and members or very close to the Republican Party. Uh, And so, of course, that's why some bishops are reluctant to speak openly Mm. on racism because there is a problem of not endangering your funding. This Catholicism in this country, no longer dominated by white Europeans, is going to be different. It's not going to be the same. American conservative Catholicism is going to be the Catholicism of the future. That has been a dream for some. Well, now it's clear that it's not going to be that way. And that creates anxiety. In your book, I know you talk a lot and explore President Biden's faith from studying him and from looking at his speeches and his behavior. What do you see? President Biden is a Catholic who's very comfortable with his own Catholicism is very shrewd in the sense that mm, he has taken positions and voted for policies that are significantly different from what the Catholic Church teaches, but he has never challenged openly church teaching because he has never made an ideological argument on this or that issue of church teaching. He has simply defended his vocation as a lay politician to do what it thinks it's best for a multi-religious country, multicultural country. His Catholicism will come to the fore because Biden is an old-style 20th century Catholic or Vatican II Catholic whose Catholicism has not just I mean, survived, but also helped him enormously in overcoming the tragedies that Joe Biden has experienced. And so it's a Catholic faith and life that has been tested. And it is credible because it's not for show. It's not a prop. It's not a a statement, but it's simply who he is. Mm. And this is, I would say, different from what other Catholic politicians or Christian politicians often would like to show. 
would you anticipate in the next four years American Catholics to go the way of other religious denominations as the intra-faith distinctions become so stark? There is a situation of soft schism in the sense that there is the practice of shunning or excommunicating fellow Catholics that disagree with you, mostly on political issues or social issues, because it's never a disagreement on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or something like that, but it's on political social issues. And it's very hard to reconcile them because there could be someone in the Catholic Church who's in charge of doing that, and they should be the bishops. But as we all know, they have lost a great deal of their authority because of their alignment with political power, but also because, and this is inseparable from this crisis, the sex abuse scandal that has made collapse their voice and their credibility much more than anywhere else. Conservative Catholic bishops and leaders, they have a problem now because they need to take the distance and emancipate themselves from the identification with Donald Trump. The leadership of the U.S. Bishop Conference, it's still in the hands of those who think it's wise to open this new chapter by disciplining uh, President Biden as a Catholic by threatening to deny the Eucharist to him. At the same time, we know that the Archbishop of Washington, D.C., who's the only one who has jurisdiction, has said in public and repeatedly that he has no intention to use that weapon against President Biden. Fajoli predicts more intra-Catholic tensions to emerge. So this is going to be a political struggle within the U.S. Catholic Church and among Catholic bishops. I think that there will be a significant support from fellow Catholics to their president. I don't think it's imaginable for the U.S. bishops to sanction and punish all Catholics that have voted for him or that support him. And so that is going to be interesting how they grappled with this reality of a church that is very divided. It did not take long to land in public view. On the day of the inauguration, the Pope sent a telegram with blessings and a message of unity. Then, in an unprecedented move, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops released a statement sending blessings, but in sharp contrast to the Pope's message, pointedly criticized Biden for supporting policies that advance, quote, moral evils. That statement was signed by the president of the U.S. Conference of Bishops, Los Angeles Archbishop Jose Gomez. He went on to describe opposition to abortion as the preeminent priority. Within hours, the conference statement was publicly rebuked by Cardinal Blaise Kupich, the Archbishop of Chicago. And according to Catholic News Agency America, the statement was released without the knowledge or support of the Vatican. Fajoli cautions against assuming this will be the only point of tension for the Biden administration. In fact, he anticipates challenges to also come from American intellectuals and leaders who embrace the political agendas espoused by the Pope. We know that in the Catholic intelligentsia in this country, Joe Biden is seen often as, of course, better than Donald Trump, but a Catholic too compromised with the past too moderate, not progressive enough. Pope Francis is, on the one hand, 
a big help for this new presidency. But on the other hand, it sets standards on issues like immigration or poverty or the environment that it will be very hard for any American president to live up to. Mm. Massimo Fagioli is a professor of theology and religious studies at Villanova University in Pennsylvania. He is also the author of a new book, Joe Biden and Catholicism in the United States. Coming up, an Arlington priest calls for more thoughtfulness in the wake of the January 6th insurrection and reflects on what he is looking for in a Biden administration. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. If you missed any portion of this program and would like to catch the podcast, just search Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. If you are just joining, we're exploring the tensions and dynamics taking place in American Catholicism and the reactions to the election of President Joe Biden. Earlier, we heard from Massimo Fagioli. He's the author of a new book exploring this very question. It's called Joe Biden and Catholicism in the United States. Fajoli describes the sea change among American Catholic voters, their clergy, and the Vatican, and how those dynamics will lead to what he believes will become a quote-unquote soft schism. This week, those differences spilled into public view as the United States inaugurated its second Catholic president. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops sent a greeting to the new president that included both criticism of his policy record and stated that the preeminent policy priority for American Catholics is abortion. And shortly after it was released, it was publicly criticized by Chicago's Cardinal Blaise Kupich. Archbishop Kupich took to Twitter. His message included the following statement, quote, aside from the fact that there is seemingly no precedent for doing so, 
The statement critical of President Biden came as a surprise to many bishops, who received it just hours before it was released. Now, in his book, Bajoli details the contentious relationship that he says Pope Francis has endured for seven-plus years as efforts to delegitimize his positions on a host of issues. Pope Francis has been really on the receiving end in these last seven, eight years, almost eight years, of a campaign of delegitimization from Catholics coming especially from the United States. Whatever the Pope says on theological issues, on social issues, especially life issues, now with this change of a Pope no longer European, but Latin American and the Jesuit, which is one more problem. So they have really changed our allegiance because their Pope has become, for some of them, Donald Trump much more than Francis. That allegiance to the Trump administration was one explanation offered for the relatively short statement published on January 6th and signed by Archbishop Gomez. The U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops issued a two-paragraph, 174-worded statement denouncing and condemning all violence. It made no distinctions, nor did it speak to the insurrectionists or the individuals or organizations who encouraged the protesters to stop the transfer of power to a new president. In many ways, the brief statement parroted the messages condemning violence issued by Republican leaders and allies of President Trump. So when I saw the 876 words penned by an Arlington, Virginia priest who is a newcomer to the national capital region, I was struck by its contrasting tone, message, and the author. He is not a liberal progressive priest. Here is Father Frederick Edlifson reading an excerpt of a statement titled, A Brave New Thoughtfulness for American Democracy. Pope Francis noted that even in the most mature reality, there was always something that does not work. People who take a path against the community, against democracy, and against the common good. Though nothing in this world is born in innocence, something mature has grown from the higher ideals upon which this country was founded, notwithstanding its faults. Bishop Burbage said, for us to move on from this event and chalk it up to yet another angry, violent demonstration following a year of violence and chaos would be a tragic mistake. Though all riots are bad, not all riots are the same. Attacking an arm is not like attacking a heart. Unlike many of the riots of 2020, the January 6th attack was not a response to a social injustice. Attacking lawmakers who were in the process of assuring a peaceful transition of power is a grave crime against all civilized people. It was not only an attack on the present government, but a threat to the prospect of democracy for all future generations. Men and women who hold public office must, more than ever, behave like ministers of state. They must weigh the impact of their words Everything they say or do has global consequences, but the onus is not just on leaders. We, ordinary citizens, must be solicitous not only about what we say or post on social media, but also about what we read and watch. We must be aware of what and who we believe. We must question sources and be cautious about the prospect of false and misleading assertions. It's a matter of social charity and responsibility. The German Jewish political thinker, Hannah Arendt, 
noted that there was a pervasive thoughtlessness in European society in the first half of the 20th century. Today, there is a thoughtlessness that arises from clinging to a narrow handful of disjointed yet strongly held convictions. Our hope lies in a new thoughtfulness. This thoughtfulness is a chosen, intentional, and empathetic social awareness, open to the needs of people outside one's own social group, even those who do not share one's opinions. Thoughtfulness starts with an attentive and non-judgmental listening to what others are saying with a view to hearing what they experience. Democracy cannot survive in a society only concerned with defending an eclectic handful of personal rights and pet causes. Democracy thrives on bold visions. For Catholic social teaching, democracy is about promoting integral human fulfillment and the common good. Catholics must boldly engage and be open to a broad array of social questions that affect millions of people. We need a brave new thoughtfulness. We just heard Father Edlifson reading an excerpt of the statement he wrote entitled, A Brave New Thoughtfulness for American Democracy. I received his statement from John Dickens of Little Rock, Arkansas via Facebook. Father Edelifson is not liberal. He often resists engaging in political activities. And in fact, he is really reticent to talk about partisan politics. So I was eager to hear what inspired this reflection and this public statement speaking directly to our politics and how we engage with each other. And how he sees this moment as President Biden prepares to lead the nation. It will be a view from a religious leader, not in the hierarchy of the Catholic Conference, but on the ground, serving a parish not far from the nation's capital. We spoke via Zoom the week before the inauguration, and our conversation begins with my question about the title and his reason for sharing his thoughts. I think a lot of folks in the world out there are are looking for ready explanations and so forth, and, and sometimes they want to minimize it or explain it away because it's hard to digest. Well, I felt as a pastor uh, that I needed to say something. What inspired you to sit down and write those words? A lot of these thoughts have been in the back of my head for a while. I did have a, always an interest in Catholic social teaching. When I was reading Catholic social teaching, not only in the seminary, but even doing you know, reading after I was ordained, So there's a lot of concrete application of that that I had to ponder. And truth be told, none of that has ever really left my mind. I still think about these things because I see as a Catholic priest, and I do believe in the incarnation of Christ. And I think that as St. Thomas Aquinas says that the Son of God became man, and, and man was the formal cause of that. In other words, he became human for our sake, to redeem us from a brokenness. And I think in many ways, a government has the same mission. It is the purpose of the government is the human person. It's there to uh, help them thrive and grow to meet their potential, but also so that person can also make a contribution to that society. And a government is not just about what it can do for me or what my personal rights it can protect. I'm not saying that's not in the mix because it is. But the aim of the government is the person, and it must recognize the dignity of that person. And if that's what is demanded of the government, the same is demanded of all of us who have a democratic participation in that government. In other words, democracy demands charity. 
and not just a charity in my own neighborhood or in my own living room or among my kin or my friends, but a charity that extends to even to people I don't know, people I do not identify with or understand. It means coming out of myself. In other words, we might call it a political charity. I think that is a virtue that needs to be cultivated in the heart of a democratic society if that's a sign to thrive and if it's going to thrive and fulfill its mission to do good for the human person. You turn to German-Jewish philosophers in writing this. When I was thinking about, well, what is the current situation in our country that is leading up to this, uh, or you might say, an exacerbation of, of racism or racial discord, various forms of intolerance, partisan whirlpools from which people don't seem to be able to escape, what is the atmosphere by which all of this is rising to the surface? And I have read quite a bit about Europe in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that I was really looking for anybody who had experience or I thought insights with that. And it's not just German Jewish philosophers. I could also mention Max Picard, who wrote a book that I read some years ago. I think he wrote it in 1948 called Hitler in Ourselves. It was a brilliant work, Mm -hmm. uh, a phenomenological work. He recollects on how a a German statesman was lamenting, I think this was in the 20s, about how the Nazism could be rising to power. And he told the statesman to sit down and he threw a newspaper down. He says, just look through that newspaper. And so he'd read headline after headline after headline. And what came about was a very disjointed very disconnected series of topics. And Max Picard said, this is how the world approaches us today. And it comes at people in a very chaotic and a disjointed fashion. And everything is competing for our attention. And he says, it's just a matter of what's the next thing that's going to grab the popular attention. And people want their attention to be grabbed because to have it grabbed by anything is better than having it grabbed by nothing even including some pernicious conspiracy theories or ideas Mm -hmm. or things that ultimately would do tremendous amount of harm to the social good. January 6th in particular was in some ways this manifestation, this synthesizing of a lot of groups that have a view of government in which there is not simply a loss of trust but an animus. Many people believe that they are not simply wronged, but they are defending the country, that they are, in fact, the true patriots. And there are many who point to the use of that frame of making sense of the challenge people face as a way of trying to understand why you would have so many people willing to be a part of an insurrection. What's your reaction to that? What we saw on on January 6th was really something that had been building up for some time. I think a political charity or social charity is needed now more than ever, uh, not just by diplomats and world travelers, but by everybody. Define political charity for me. It's a charity that extends to wanting to be tolerant, wanting to listen, and wanting to reflect upon political ideas that one, I do not agree with, or two, I am unfamiliar with, or just are outside my ambit of understanding. And it means also treating the person who holds or proposes those ideas with a respect. Uh, Not to see someone who disagrees with me as an enemy, 
uh, but to see them as another person whom I might disagree with or who I may come to understand better through a conversation. Our human condition needs redemption and we need God's grace. But all of that also means we have to willfully choose to step outside of ourselves. And that's an act of love. You know, love is to step outside of one's own will and one's own understanding to another's will and understanding, just if, if for no other reason than to uh, respect that person and to treat them as, uh, as a brother and sister, as a fellow human. So this is essential, I think, to not only civilization, but to a democratic society. If that is lost, you're going to see more of what we saw on January 6th. So I hear you about the power of technology and wireless media, but those are mediums. There are voices on those mediums. How do we hold those voices accountable? What role do religious leaders play in mediating or introducing a mechanism to reclaim thoughtfulness uh, and combat the thoughtlessness that you point out? Truth be told, I have to process that question myself. There's always an occupational hazard for any one of us. Anybody can fall into this of turning in on oneself, living in one's own little world, so to speak. There's a comfort in that, and it's not always a bad thing, but we can't stay there all the time. For a lot of people in this country, and I know you are well aware that while we're talking about religious leaders, as we go into this year, we have a record number of our fellow Americans, the majority of whom identify not with a particular religious tradition. And the reality of our multi-faith pluralism is ever-present today. That vibrancy, that engagement of people in the public square, how we negotiate what your faith tells you to do in the public square versus what my faith tells me to do in the public square. And as a religious leader, it seems to me that that question, that people are also, I think, hungry for understanding what that looks like. How do you envision speaking to that challenge? Well, I speak to that challenge by speaking to people's humanity. I was the chaplain of the Catholic campus ministry at the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg. And I noticed with a lot of the college students, I'm not just talking about Catholic students, I'm talking about students from all different backgrounds. Even though they may not be religious in one sense, they have a lot of transcendent questions. Sure. We are by our very human nature truth seekers. And I don't mean just truth in terms of propositions or ideas, but truth in terms of who we are as persons and the truth of what it means to be human. And these are questions that I think everybody has ticking in the back of their mind and, mm -hmm. or in the, in the depths of their heart in one way or the other. It's something that everybody has in common. And so I think we need to speak to that. We need to cultivate not only that, that personal seeking, but also cultivate that we, each of us recognizes that in the other, that we recognize a, a common need, a common longing for something that transcends our immediate concerns. Mm. And I think this is something that can be done from the pulpit. And I think it is something that can be done by many other ways in, in, in the world of religion, mm -hmm. even in the world outside of religion. Reflections from you as we're about to have this historic moment. Well, I would hope the grace of his baptism and the grace of the sacrament of confirmation would, uh, would, 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 would have access to him. I don't know Mr. Biden's personal religiosity or piety very well. I don't know much about it. I will say this, one of my most admired political figures in post-World War II America is Robert F. Kennedy, 
And I see in him a case in point where I do think the grace of his faith did have an effect on his politics. That famous talk he gave in Indianapolis on the night that Martin Luther King was assassinated, he he gave that talk extemporaneously without notes and without protection. Mm -hmm. He was putting himself out there and gave probably what I think is one of the best political speeches I've ever heard. But what it showed in there and an, an outreach and understanding, a willing to put himself out there for the needs of a Black American community that was suffering in what I would call the footprints of history. Vice President Biden chose Kamala Harris as his running mate, an African-American and South Asian woman breaking all kinds of barriers as his running mate. He's prioritized uh, addressing systemic racism and speaking directly to anti-Black racism in this country. And he also drops biblical references in speeches. I'm curious, are you excited about the prospect of having a second Catholic president in the United States? Well, it's a hard thing for me to say, because like I said, I want to see what he does first. The race issue is also tied in very much as a life issue. The government is involved in giving life. And in other words, a life is given by justice. I think one of the areas where I have a concern with Biden is on the right to life issue. And I'll speak very frankly about that. I think that's something that I think an unborn child has as many rights as anybody else in terms of their the right to life, but also the fact that they have no voice and cannot have a voice other than ours that is intimately and intrinsically tied to every other social justice issue. That includes immigrants, that includes racial justice, and that includes economic justice. Vice President Biden-elect has talked about moving forward on reverting to a ban on federal executions. Right. And that is a life issue. It's different from the question of abortion. Abortion deals with an innocent person very similar to what has traditionally been called a just war question. You can't attack non-belligerents and so on. But in terms of someone who's guilty, there's a presumption in favor of life, unless there's some impelling reason that overturns that presumption. The Holy Father and the church has spoken quite clearly, the bishops and so on, that right now there is no justification for capital punishment. The Holy Father seems to be going the direction that there never should be a, a justification for capital punishment at all. I've been following uh, Pope Francis's statements on both that and on economic issues, as well as other social issues that seem to be perhaps a bit further than where the U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops are at the time. Here's the problem with partisan politics in general. It's like a whirlpool. It, it, it sucks you into like a little narrow funnel, and it's hard to see or get out of it. So in other words, it takes us away from the b- broader picture of what our faith is all about. Pro-life isn't just avoiding homicide, which of course is, but it's also positively affirming life by, by giving it through justice and opportunity and human integral human fulfillment and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That goes into a whole array of other complex issues. But what can easily happen in today's partisan environment, one gets sucked into a very narrow and a very eclectic collection of partisan issues. I think sometimes the things that I say as a priest and is that is not because I'm looking for or expecting an immediate agreement mm-hmm. or somebody to really change right away. I often think of myself as planting a seed. You sort of have to say things sometimes and not expect immediate results. And I found that in, in the business of being a spiritual father, because more often than not, grace works slowly. People process things over time. From that standpoint, I have hope, but we have to continue to nurture that process by speaking the truth, challenging them when, they, when they're living in an alternate reality. But at the same time, it's also a very delicate process. You shove too much down someone's throat, they're going to spit it right back at you. Are there any last thoughts or reflections as we move forward from this inauguration? 
I think we need to look forward with a, a sense of hope. We need to pray for President-elect Biden. And I think we need to pray for him because he has an enormous undertaking ahead of him to convince not only a sharply divided country, but a country that has been really harmed by, you might say, leadership that has lived in an alternative reality. He needs to reestablish that credibility. That is no small task, especially for a man of his age. You know, here he is. Uh, for most people, they're, you know, this is where they're really winding down, but he's just winding up. Yeah. And so we have to wish him the best. It's not a question of agreeing with him on every single thing he says or does. He has a situation now where the future of humanity, the future of not only this country, but how this country's impact on the lives of millions of people all over the world, he has in his hands right now. And so we have to pray that through you know divine providence, that there's a grace there and a gift there to do some good that will resonate on into the future. That's Father Frederick Edlifson, pastor of Our Lady of Lords Catholic Church in Arlington, Virginia. To find a link to his full statement, please visit the show notes for this week's episode at interfaithradio.org. A special thanks to our producers, Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. And a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler and MC Yogi for our theme music. Wherever you are, I hope you are well and you stay connected. And I encourage you to learn more about us, subscribe to our newsletter, and sign up for the podcast. Just search Interfaith Voices. And if you are listening via podcast, I'd like to invite you to leave a review. It helps others discover the show. We're going to close this week's program hearing a rendition of Amazing Grace performed by Lori Marie Key at this week's COVID-19 Memorial Ceremony on the National Mall on January 19th, 2021. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and that you stay connected. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was, was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see the Lord have promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He will my strength in perfect peace as long as life endures as long as life endures